What if I told you that practicing self-compassion has research-backed benefits for improving performance and motivation, but there are also some half-truths that you might want to learn? Well, you're in for a treat today with Dr. Diana Hill. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. When you practice self-compassion, you start to realize and you start to differentiate Am I doing this to get people to like me or am I doing this because this is really what is aligned with my values and what I care about? And, you know, maybe this is an area where I want to lose my edge. I want to pull back a little bit on how hard I'm pushing myself. And that's something that for me is the point where I have too many plates spinning. That at some point in my life, it's really good to let some of those plates just fall and crash when they're the plates that aren't aligned with my values. But with self-compassion, you feel more motivated to do it because you can see that if I let this plate go, then I can put my energy into the ones that are fulfilling to me or the ones that can be most beneficial to others. Self-compassion has three integral components self-kindness versus self-judgment, common humanity versus isolation, and mindfulness versus over-identification. I have interviewed a pioneer researcher, Dr. Kristen Neff, on the show twice, so she is linked up in the show notes if you want to learn about some of the research behind self-compassion. But as with the field of psychology and in positive psychology, the field that I am in, there's always new research that is coming out, and staying up on the new research is so critical. Today's episode on self-compassion with Dr. Diana Hill is a good one, particularly if you are a skeptic around self-compassion, which Dr. Diana Hill and myself both admitted to. There are three half-truths around self-compassion that we talked about today. Number one, that self-compassion is selfish. Number two, that people think that they will lose their edge if they practice self-compassion. And number three, that self-compassion is hokey. So stay tuned to hear about those half-truths, what about that is true and what about that isn't true. Many high performers think that they have to beat themselves up in order to perform better, but research shows that that isn't the case. And in fact, within my line of work, I study motivation. I study self-determination theory and need satisfaction. And those needs are autonomy, competence, and relatedness, and they are core to well-being. And I saw a study that suggested that self-compassion fosters autonomy by promoting a supportive self-relationship in the face of personal failures. That means that we can have perceived competence and have stronger connection through common humanity. Self-compassion has been something I've particularly practiced in my mountain biking life because I put a lot of pressure on myself to perform at the highest level or to ride really technical terrain And I used to get so angry if I rolled up upon something super technical and I had to get off my bike and walk, particularly if I had ridden it before. 
And that did not help me perform better. It just made me grumpy and it ruined my ride. So over time, I've been practicing this and it's taken years. So now I can actually say it's okay. And that's a mantra that works for me. It's okay if I don't ride something today. And that doesn't mean anything about my self-worth. It doesn't mean anything about my skills. And that is a prime example of what I just gave about need satisfaction. I am not telling myself that I am not competent and unable to ride a technical feature. It's just that I wasn't able to ride it that day and that that was okay. Dr. Diana's new book, The Self-Compassion Daily Journal, is definitely worth picking up. She addressed things in this journal that I had not seen or thought of before, and I'm somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about self-compassion, so it's definitely worth grabbing your copy. Today's episode is pretty fun because Dr. Diana Hill joins us from a riding retreat in Costa Rica, where we had the privilege of diving deep into the fascinating topic of self-compassion and kind of workshopped how it works in our own lives. There is some uncomfortable vulnerability on my part. Diana knows how to put me on the spot a little bit, but I am happy to do it. And it's always an interesting conversation and brings new insight into my own life. So hopefully this brings new insight into yours as well. We talked about the challenges of writing and self-criticism and drawing from her extensive expertise in psychology and personal experiences. Dr. Diana Hill is the host of the podcast Wise Effort. I've been a guest on her previous podcast, Your Life in Process, and she and I collaborate frequently. Diana is a clinical psychologist and expert in acceptance and commitment therapy and also process-based therapies and helping people live well. And she and I have very similar interests. We like working with perfectionists, people who have high drive, high strivings, and how to help people strive in a healthy way. And she is working on her new book called Wise Effort. In today's episode, we explore the profound impact of cultural influences on self-esteem and individualism, shedding light on the societal pressures that can make practicing self-compassion a daunting task for many of us. But it's not all about struggles. We also delve into the research-backed benefit of self-compassion, discovering how this powerful practice can improve performance and motivation by allowing us to recognize and honor our non-aligned commitments. And values is such a huge part of ACT. It is the foundation of ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. So I love whenever we talk about values. One of the highlights of our conversation is the exploration of embodiment practices. So how self-compassion and discomfort is not just in our mind, but it's also in our body. And Diana introduces us to the transformative power of adopting compassionate postures and approaching difficult emotions with kindness through the body, which is something that I had never done before and something that I am practicing. We went through an exercise in my own life that you will want to hear. This conversation felt personal for me. During my time in my master's in applied positive psychology that I am currently working on, I've been cultivating the academic and coaching side of my identity and my working life at the most respected institution in the world for positive psychology, working with the founder of positive psychology and many influential others. So at times I'm grappling with self-doubt while writing an academic paper, while raising my hand in class, afraid I'm gonna ask a stupid question or, or not be able to formulate a good question or working to improve my performance as a high achiever and balancing my day-to-day routine as a mom and all of the other things that I'm trying to do. Throughout, it is a goal of mine to cultivate more compassion in my life, and not only self-compassion, but compassion for all beings. Self-compassion is critical whenever you are enduring change in your life. It's something that I talked about in my bench documentary, not explicitly, but I said that whenever you are going through big shifts in your identity or you are adding to your identity, 
Knowing what your values are is so important. And I've talked extensively about some of the challenges of balancing all of these different plates that you might have in the air if you are now a parent and maybe you have a lot of different goals in your life. And that requires self-compassion because it's impossible to feel good or happy or satisfied in your life without it. Today, we talked about how self-compassion involves acknowledging suffering within oneself and offering help and kindness, while compassion also includes offering this to others. And we also talked about how approaching difficult emotions with compassion through the body helps process them rather than avoid or suppress them. And sadness is the one that I talked about in today's podcast. I'm excited to invite you to join me on this enlightening conversation with my friend and somebody that I look up to as a mentor, Dr. Diana Hill. So let's get right into it. Hi, Diana. (laughs) Hi, Sonia. Good to see you. I love this. We've had, I don't even know how many, maybe a year or two now of our friendship, but we have built our friendship through the podcast and then offline. So it's so much fun now to come together to record these podcasts. I know it's well, it's it's an excuse to get to see you and spend an hour with you because we're both busy in our lives. And oftentimes we're catching each other on a run or driving to pick up our kids. And now we get a whole big chunk of time to talk about things that we're interested research wise, but also, you know, what, what's happening for us in our lives and how we're applying the research maybe well or not so well sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So first tell us where you are. I am in Costa Rica. I'm in Nosara, Blue Spirit, Costa Rica. I'm at a retreat center, and I was supposed to be home by now, but I decided to stay longer because I'm on a writing retreat. I'm working on a book, and it was really an act of self-compassion to remove myself from my children and my clients to come to a place where I can feel really nourished to do the hard work of writing. I, I don't enjoy writing. I'm not one of those people that love to wake up and write my morning pages. It's a struggle. For me, and it brings up every single inch of self doubt that I have in my body to write. And then at the same time, I have this deep inner drive to talk about and share about ideas around psychological flexibility and compassion and wise effort. And so, this is a space where I can do that with the most kindness possible. So, you'll see like jungle behind me, and we might get a few monkeys and (laughs) all sorts of things happening here. There's lots of large bugs on the ground that I'm sitting on. That's <laughs> so hilarious. Keep a distance. Well, Dr. Yeah. Judd was on the podcast yesterday and there was a cattail going under his nose <laughs> for part of it. So if you see monkeys today yeah. and cats yesterday, we're, we're in good shape. <laughs> yeah. I can relate a lot with what you said about writing. Whenever I sit down to write, I don't have a lot of highly self-critical voices anymore. It's something I've worked on and I want to talk about that with you. But when I sit down to write, it's so loud and it makes it so hard to actually write. And I think it's interesting that you also have that experience. Yeah. You know, a lot of times those voices aren't even ours, right? They go back to maybe our experiences as a kid when we were writing. And the first thing they start to do in like first grade is get out the red pen and start correcting you, right? And then also there's a vulnerability to it. There's, at least for me, there's not only me reading it, but I have this, you know, this imposed audience of what will people think? And that, am I going to be exposed in some way that I don't know what I'm talking about, which is one of my big things, you know? And so it just becomes this barrier to actually do what you need to do, which is just put stuff on a page. And, And, you know, any musician, any artist, any creator knows that this is the first draft. My uncle was a um, painter or is a painter. 
And he, you know, an oil painter, and he just would sketch out the scene before it would take layers and layers and layers to get to the final painting. But for us, or at least for me, that first sketch, it feels really scary to Mm -hmm. put on the page. Yeah. I think that's a great segue into talking about self-compassion because I mean, how many books have you written? Because there's been a few now. The first book I wrote was on ACT, ACT Daily Journal. And then the book that is out right now is the Self-Compassion Daily Journal. Mm -hmm. And then I'm working on two more. So I'm working on a book with Katie Bowman, a movement specialist about psychological barriers to moving our bodies, which is fascinating. And then I'm working on a book with Sounds True on Wise Effort. So Mm -hmm. I'm working on four. (laughs) That's amazing. So before we started talking, you know, you and I were talking about self-compassion and how some people don't really agree with self-compassion. Some people kind of roll their eyes when they hear that. Some people have a lot of ideas of what it is and what it isn't. So can you start us off here and just kind of set the record straight on where we're at with self-compassion? Yeah, well, I think I'm one of those people. And maybe I didn't outwardly roll my eyes. You know, outwardly, I say, that's that's a great thing. We should, all should be kind to ourselves, right? But inwardly, did a little mini eye roll and, and didn't drink the Kool-Aid straight up, you know, because I had beliefs about, and these are common beliefs. There's actually researched fears of self-compassion. You can go online and look up fears of self-compassion and get the fears of self-compassion self-assessment that you can take to see hmm. what are you afraid of? What what are you afraid of in being kind to yourself? What are you afraid of in being kind to others? Another one, what are you afraid of in receiving kindness from others? And some of the fears that I had were things like, I'm going to lose my edge. It's selfish if I'm if I'm being self-compassionate, especially as a mom. I would say that really gets going for me. And then it's hokey. <laughs> it's cheesy. You know, the Stuart Smiley, good enough, smart enough, gosh darn it, people like me. That didn't fit for me. It, did, it didn't fit for who I am. And actually what the research is showing, as most psychology research shows, is that it's actually quite nuanced, this, this idea around self-compassion, that it's some of those actually are half-truths. And I could go through each one. What, where, where is this, the half-truth? And, and then what is the debunking of each of those fears, which may help, especially if your listeners have similar fears, before we even talk about some of the applications of self-compassion. Uh, but before I do that, it's actually, it is helpful to give the definition that self-compassion is acknowledging the suffering that exists within you, pain, discomfort, embarrassment, physical sensations that are uncomfortable, And then turning towards that suffering, that discomfort, that pain, and offering help, the courage to be kind to yourself, but also help yourself out when you're having a hard time. That is self-compassion. And how is that different from compassion? Well, compassion is a is a larger idea that uh, sort of accompanies this flow of offering that to others, as well as offering that to yourself. And then being able to receive that. So Paul Gilbert, who's a researcher at the Compassionate Mind Foundation in the UK, talks about this flow of compassion as three ways. And if you really look back to the roots of compassion, which have a lot of its roots in uh, Buddhism and contemplative practice, self-compassion was never described as separate from compassion. It was always described as something that is part of this greater flow because you yourself is your inner self is seen as part of a larger self, right? And and we know this in terms of like within our family, when I'm struggling, I'm stressed out, I had a hard day at work, 
I'm at my limit. If I don't care for some of those feelings of stress or having a hard day and I walk in the door, my kids are going to get a version of me that isn't the funnest to be around. You know, I may be irritable. The first thing I'm going to notice is that everything's a mess. I might shout orders at everybody. I may not connect. So that inability to have self-compassion can impact our relationships, can impact how we interact with others. And it is low. So compassion is the capacity to just contact suffering, whether it's your own suffering or another person's suffering or our planet's suffering, and then be able to offer help, encouragement, wisdom, strength, motivation, and a sense that you are there to be of the deepest support. I'm guessing why people separate the two is because it's easier to be kind or to offer compassion when someone's, you know, suffering to somebody else. But doing it to ourselves is really hard. We are often our own worst critics. We say the worst things to ourselves that we would never say to somebody else. Why is it so hard for us to have self-compassion? Well, I take a sort of a contextual biopsychosocial perspective on that. If you look at it from a biological perspective, there, you know, evolutionarily, we have that negativity bias. We have that self-corrector nature to us because we want to belong. We want to be part of the tribe. It's very dangerous for you to be excluded, right? And so part of what that sort of mistake finding and mistake correcting part of our mind is, is to help keep us safe. Like that fear that's in me, if I'm writing and what will people think, dates way back to my ancestors that were like, what will people think? And and because they thought that way, they survived uh, because they were able to stay part of the group, right? So evolutionarily, our brains design, were designed to fit into groups, to stay safe, to avoid danger. And, and so we're just primed to have that little bit of a negativity bias towards ourselves. But then that's the biological part. The sort of psychological part of it is also our learning history. What were our caregivers? How did, how did they speak to us? What was modeled to us? I mean, I have so many memories of my mom getting dressed in the morning. When you're a kid, you kind of like, you kind of hang out in your mom's, I don't know if you do this. I hung out in my mom's room while she would, you know, put her earrings on and get dressed like little, little, you know, like two, three, four years old. And I have so many memories of her looking at her body and being judgmental. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at her stomach and saying little things about herself, right? So even if she never said that to me, my mom never said anything to me, I'm adopting that. So we, we see it as modeled to us. And then we also live, the, the larger social context that we live in is not of one that promotes you're okay as you are. <laughs> you know, it, it, it certainly is, uh, you know, there's a lot of money that is made on us feeling bad about ourselves, Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's in the water, it's in the air, it's it's in the media that we are consuming all the time. So biopsychosocial, it's it's all of the above. I think about other cultures that aren't maybe as capitalistic, where it's like you have to you have to keep buying stuff so that you can finally be enough or have enough. I wonder if what it's like in more collective cultures. Have you come across anything about that? Well, in, what I have come across is that in some more collective cultures, there's there's less of a separation of self and other mm-hmm. when it comes to compassion. There's there's a greater understanding that that when we're compassionate for others, we're also being compassionate for ourselves and vice versa. When I was in um, Plum Village, I remember I was uh, talking with a man who was from Vietnam, 
and he, we were, we were talking about birthdays and he was saying that uh, in Vietnam, they don't really celebrate birthdays hmm. like because it's such an individualistic idea that this is your day that you were born, that you're, we know we're supposed to celebrate the individual person, but that, you know, it, it wasn't, it's not part of that culture to celebrate an individual on their birthday because it's more of a celebrations that have to do more with the collective whole. So it certainly is, you know, the Dalai Lama has been sort of well known for kind of being shocked when people told him that, uh, you know, in, especially in the U.S., people have a lot of self-hatred and it, it, he did not, he didn't, that just didn't register. Like, how could you have that for yourself? So. Yeah, it also makes me think of specialness, like in Arthur Brooks' book, From Strength to Strength, I distinctly remember one of the anecdotes in the book and it was this woman and she was this really high achiever and she was giving up everything in her life to be an achiever, to be at the top. And in the interview, it was something like, well, would you, would you rather be happy and like make time for your relationships and have more, you know, other things in your life or, you know, you're, you're just trying, you're trying to be special. You're trying to prove something by continuing to achieve. And she said, I would rather be special. And that makes me think of this like individualistic culture that we live in, which isn't a bad thing, but we have to be careful, you know, with what we're trading to feel special and having these contingencies of self-worth. And it sounds like paying attention to, to compassion and self-compassion is, is a really key part of that. So part of that whole specialness movement was, I'm a child of the 80s. And in the 80s, there was a big push for self-esteem. <laughs> It was like, it was like part of like, we've got to get these kids feeling good about themselves and tell them that they're special and you're, you know, you're unique and, and we're all individuals and we're all not so different, right? Both can coexist. That's, you know, the nature of linkage and the nature of differentiation. We're differentiated, but we're also linked. But so it's part of this, this eighties movement. And there was a fascinating series of studies on self-compassion that came out from Brian's and Chen. And they were looking at self-compassion in different, they were at Berkeley. And they had a bunch of Berkeley students basically take this test that made them fail at it, right? So if you're, if you're at Berkeley and you fail, you're, oh my gosh, I'm at Berkeley. I'm special, right? I'm smart. I got here. And after failing the test, half of them received a self-esteem intervention which was for them to write about all their strengths, all the ways they are great, all that, you know, sort of like if you came home and you failed your test, what your mom would tell you to boost you back up, make you feel a strong self-esteem. And then the other half of the group were given a self-compassion intervention, which they were told things like, that was a really hard test. A lot of people didn't do well at it here. It's understandable that you didn't do well. Not everybody does well at everything, Right. And this is sort of a common humanity aspect of self-compassion. And then they were given the opportunity to take the test again. So those that were given the self-compassion intervention studied longer and harder for that next test than those that were given the self-esteem intervention. So we think that being special or boosting ourselves up or making ourselves different in some way is going to, going back to that myth of um, sort of the edge, we'll lose our edge. But actually, the reality is, is that we gain an edge when we practice self-compassion. And this has been replicated in so many different ways. There's, it's been replicated with um, uh, competitive swimmers, competitive swimmers who have a compassionate intervention, a self, you know, who score higher on self-compassion, enter more of a flow state and have decreased performance anxiety. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff done with like binge eating. If you make binge eaters kind of feel 
bad. They evoke like a negative mood, negative affect by, again, often making them fail a test. And then they offer a ton of food. Binge eaters are less likely to eat as much food if they're given a self-compassion intervention. So it actually helps you with your edge to be kind to yourself, but it feels really counterintuitive for a lot of us, especially those of us that that think that we should be special or better than. Yeah. And that, that sounds like it's one of those half truths that you're mentioning. Like, well, if I am self-compassionate, then I'm going to lose my edge. And you you just demonstrated how you won't lose your edge, but then you said it's a half truth. So where's the part where you might actually lose your edge? You might lose your edge in areas that you are holding yourself and pushing yourself to such a degree that maybe it would be a good thing to lose your edge a little. Mm -hmm. Because when you practice (laughs) self-compassion, you start to realize and you start to differentiate, am I doing this to get people to like me or am I doing this because this is really what is aligned with my values and what I care about? And, you know, maybe this is an area where I want to lose my edge. I want to pull back a little bit on how hard I'm pushing myself. And that's something that for me, you know, recovery from an eating disorder, anorexia and bulimia, continuous struggle with striving and pushing myself academically to the point where I have too many plates spinning. That at some point in my life, it's really good to let some of those plates just fall and crash when they're the plates that aren't aligned with my values. And that could be really hard for people. But with self-compassion, you feel more motivated to do it because you can see that if I let this plate go, then I can put my energy into the ones that are fulfilling to me or the ones that can be most beneficial to others. Yeah. And it also kind of sounds like that self-esteem piece is, is not, not getting as emphasized because, well, if my self-esteem is tied to all these plates and doing really well at all these plates, now I have to keep them all in the air. And if I let one go, that doesn't mean that I'm not worthy or good, or whatever the words are that you want to use to describe yourself. Right. Exactly. That's hard to do though. Like, how do you actually execute that? (laughs) I'm in Costa Rica right now. (laughs) You know how many plates are dropping right now while I'm here? It's ridiculous. (laughs) It's hard and it, and it's a practice. And, and that's why the book that I wrote isn't just about self-compassion. It's also about act Mm -hmm. and psychological flexibility because as you practice self-compassion, you make a decision to let some of these plates fall, there's going to be discomfort that shows up. And knowing what your values are, knowing knowing the why behind it or the intrinsic, like deeper reason why you're letting that go will help fortify you and help you be more flexible. And the, you know, it's linked to that other half truth. So, so, the, so the, the half truth of I'll lose my edge, but the other half truth that self-compassion makes me selfish because what actually starts to happen is that when you have those values on board, you actually become less selfish. What's selfish is for me to spin all those plates because what ends up happening as I'm spinning them all is that the important ones don't get the best of me. Like my husband, he will often say like, Diana, when you're doing all of this, I get the leftovers. Your clients get a great version of you at nine o'clock in the morning. Your podcast with Sonia Looney is fantastic at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. But by the time you come home at five o'clock at night, you got nothing left. 
and that's where it's like, okay, well, wait a minute here. The, the, the important parts of your life that it actually becomes somewhat selfish not to be self-compassionate. That one makes me squirm a little bit because I can I can relate to that. Like, ooh, she's ooh. she's getting right in there. I can't find a how, but where are you squirming? Where's the squirm? Uh, just just around like where you put your energy because we all have a limited amount of energy and we we have to be intentional and choose where we put that energy. And sometimes you're right. By the end of the day, you're just like, I, I just want everyone to leave me alone. And that's the time when you need to be there and be present for your family. So yeah being able to do things that aren't going to be draining your energy or doing less things. I'll tell you the pandemic and having a baby in the pandemic was hard, but it was probably one of the best things that's happened to me because I wasn't able to achieve at the same rate anymore because I, I couldn't race anymore. There were no races. And after that, when people went back to racing, I couldn't race because the border was closed. I couldn't leave. And I, I just, everything I was doing had to stop. And then since then I haven't been able to quote achieve at the same rate because I don't work 12 hours a day anymore. I have six hours a day where I have to jam everything in. So because of that, I, I can't have as many plates in the air. I have to be okay with that. And so I've been forced into it, but it's taught me that I don't need to have all these things going on for me to feel good. That was just the story that I was telling myself, but it's something that I always have to be fighting against because I always feel that itchy drive to put one more up there. Yeah. What I find is that when I allow just more margins in my life, you know, sort of like the, like if you're writing a paper and your professor says the margins have to be two inches or whatever, there's a reason why those margins are there, right? They, they create a space. There's a reason why things are double spaced. You can read it better. There's more space for your mind to pause before you get to the next line, but there's also more space for some new ideas to come in, maybe to write a little bit in the margins. And for me, as I'm here, so for example, here in Costa Rica, I wake up, I go for a run, I go for a swim, I have a coffee, but there's, there's just people here to have conversations with. And because I haven't packed my days, I can talk to someone while I'm waiting in line. And it's not like this sense of, I need to rush through this to get to the next thing because there's not enough time to talk to you. And in those conversations, there's some beautiful little mystery, wonderful things that are happening. There's also really cool people that are here to talk to, but you know, it, it's in those margins. And part of self-compassion is finding and listening to your rhythm rather than just automatically getting into the rhythm of the busyness that, that is speeding up as we go, as our culture speeds up, actually listening to your biological rhythm, listening to the, your ultradian rhythm. We have these, we have circadian rhythms, but also ultradian rhythms, which are the, the ups and downs of energy throughout our day. Two o'clock in the afternoon, I've tracked my ultradian rhythm for a while and I know it now, like two o'clock is not the time for me to see like my most difficult client or try and work on my most difficult part of my paper, right? Because that's my lull. That's actually, that's, if you are my two o'clock client, I love you. And you know that I love you because I put you in my two o'clock spot. <laughs> <sighs> I put my, I put my tough folks at 10 AM, <laughs> you know, and, and so not all of them, but, but, but getting to know yourself, that is an act of, of self-compassion. And I do want to go back to the, the half truth part of selfishness though. Because there's some interesting nuanced research that's come out more recently. And so Joe Sorochi, who's this fantastic Australian researcher, he wrote the foreword to the Self-Compassion Daily Journal. And 
he's phenomenal, but he's always trying to like cut away at stuff and find the edge and not just like that there's one pill for everything. Right. So he looked at self-compassion and found that, you know, for folks that see self-compassion as only benefiting them and is separate from benefiting others, they don't get the same well-being. And in another study, men who scored lower on conscientiousness and practiced self-compassion, they actually acted more selfishly towards their partners. So self-compassion, when, when you are using it in a way to only benefit you and you're not conscious of other people around you, it's not going to be as effective and it actually may make you more selfish. So we do have to be aware of that. And that's where seeing it as a flow, seeing that I, as I am taking care, it's not just self-care. I'm actually like tending to the parts of me that hurt or struggle. When I do that, it's going to benefit Sonia. And then when she does that, it's going to benefit Dr. Jed. And then when Dr. Jed does that, it's going to benefit his cat. (laughs) I've met that cat. It's cute. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to say that like part of ACT is going towards this, the discomfort, like letting in the, the emotions that are the hard emotions that a lot of us try to think about, you know, think about something else to make it go away or go do something to make it go away. The avoidance piece. And it seems like a true act of self-compassion is actually going through that, like allowing yourself to go through those emotions that are difficult because on the other side is, is something there for you instead of running away from it completely. And that's something that I, I work on a lot is that, I don't like to cry. Like I, I do not want to cry. I don't want to be just stuff from my past. So for me, allowing myself to cry is an act of self-compassion to allow those feelings to come through me. And I was just thinking about that as you were mentioning some of those things. Yeah, we all have, we all have emotions we don't like to feel. And, and they're usually different. They're sort of idiosyncratic, right? Wh- who, which emotions are the ones that, oh, I, I, I'm willing to, for me, I'm willing to, I love crying. Client starts crying in my session. I feel like we're getting somewhere. I'll cry with them. Yay. I love feeling that. Mm-hmm. I do not like to feel angry. Mm. And so I'll do anything to avoid that feeling. I'm scared of it. I'm, I, I feel like it's, oh my gosh, if I feel angry, it's going to blow up. I'm going to look like a mess. I'm going to say things that are hurtful, right? And so just block it out, stuff it down. And other people may may really hate anxiety. That, that That's the emotion that they don't want to feel. Uh, some people actually are uncomfortable with feeling happiness or joy because if I allow myself to feel happiness and joy, then then what if it goes away, right? And so with self-compassion, the, the practice, and I have a whole chapter on actually I have a day for, for each of these emotions, self-compassion for shame, self-compassion for anger, self-compassion for sadness. And the practice is... The first practice that I use around that comes from my training. I, my my root teacher is Thich Nhat Hanh. And so in my 20s, I went to Plum Village and had a whole just sort of miraculous, wonderful experience of learning about a different way of interacting with myself and have been learning his teachings for 20 years, 20 plus years. But the practice that I do around that is actually making contact with the feeling in your body. So like for you, Sonia... When you feel like you're going to cry and maybe you're, sh- you're shoving it down, like where do you feel that in your body? Do you, do you have a sense of that? Like the edge of tears? Mm, 
I'd say like my face, but also my chest. And then there's a heaviness and it's like trying to jam it down into the chest, like out of the face and into the chest, like just push it down. Mm-hmm. When was the last time that happened for you? Uh, right before we started talking, <laughs> when I was saying, telling you like, oh, I've been having a hard time lately and I felt it. I'm like, no, you're not doing it. Yeah. 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 So it comes, it can come to you. It's like, I've been having a hard time and then it's on the edge and you, and you shove it down. You feel it in your face. Mm -hmm. You feel it, you feel it in your chest and your, your response is to tighten mm -hmm. up around it, shove it down. Yeah. And I think the story around it is like, it's not okay to have a hard time. Like you have to be strong all the time. And then yeah. to say like, then, then the self-compassion is it's okay to have a hard time. Everybody has a hard time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How well does that for you when you tell yourself that? Uh, it has to be in the right context. Like I need to be alone and there's all these like rules that I have around how to, how to process those things, but I'm working on not doing it alone anymore. Mm -hmm. so there's like shame that comes up around that of like, Oh, well, if I show this, well, now I'm ashamed because now I look weak or now I look like I can't, I can't handle things. And it's actually really sad to do that by yourself because being able to have somebody else support you whenever you're having a hard time and then try not to feel shame around that is it's like, it's tricky. Right. And if we think about the function of tears, the only reason why we would have tears is to communicate that to another person. We know that we feel sad. Mm -hmm. How do we communicate to another person that we feel sad? Mm -hmm. Through our face, through our tears. And why would we do that? Why would the human have evolved tears and a sad face? Because when you see someone crying, you want to go in and help, mm -hmm. right? So what's happening when, you're, when your sadness shows up and you feel it in your body and you feel it on the edge and then you feel the shame coming in is you're actually blocking yourself from the natural human condition, which is to feel overwhelmed, to cry, and for someone to see that you're crying and come in and say, can I help? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what could I do to help you? I'm, you know, and, and to give someone that gift because it actually feels really good to comfort someone that's crying. So, so you said that one of the things that you do is, is you, you do like a self-statement of everyone feels, you know, this sometimes, which is very much a self-compassionate thing, but it's also a cognitive thing. And, and for me, I can go to a cognitive place sometimes, but I can't go to a cognitive place when I'm in a really, really big emotion or in the emotions that are most difficult for me, like anger. Hmm. Like if someone told me, everybody gets angry and I'm feeling this anger in my body. I don't know if that would help me. Mm -hmm. What, what helps me is, Oh, where am I feeling that in my body? Just where, and can I, can I be with it? And could I sort of like, if I'm, you know, you were holding tight to or gripping sand in your hand, like, Oh my gosh, I can't let it go. Cause if I let it go, it's going to fall out. And maybe if your hands upside down like this, you grip, 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 could you just turn your hand over with that sadness and hold it and look at it? And that's the first step of compassion is, is to approach and be with that which is uncomfortable. For some of us, that's a lot. And then, and then the next thing would be, I don't know, how do you, who's comfortable for you when, they, when they're sad? Like, who can you be around when they're sad that you feel care towards? Um, almost anybody, actually. <laughs> anyone in particular like if you think about their sad face you're like oh my gosh I just oh, my, my kids 
Yeah. I see, I see lots of sad faces. <laughs> I know. Which, which one? Which one really? Not that you love one more than the other, but is, is one of your children mm-hmm. really get you when they're sad more than the others? Yeah, my son. Your son? Mm-hmm. What does he look like when he's sad? Uh, you can see it starting to come on before it's even fully come on, this, the sad face. And he's so he's such a sensitive, kind, like sweet person that to think of him, you know, being sad is like, it's so hard. And yeah. I just want, I, and you just want to get in there and just be like, oh, but you can't fix it for them, but you just want to like be there for them. So what if I were to watch, like if I, if there's like a camera in your house and your son was having that moment of sadness. And then I was watching Sonia show up as like her very best version of her mother, loving mother, compassionate self. What would you do? I just go pick him? him up and hold him and just say, it's okay. And then just go sit and say, I'm here. Okay. So you have exactly what you need. And this, this is for all of us. We, we have compassionate minds and hearts and we know, we know how to be compassionate. It's hard to do it for ourselves. But notice how you, you did two things. You, you, you picked him up and you held him. And then for you, the words that came to you are, it's okay, I'm here. And what I would recommend is that if sadness shows up for you, you feel it, just you notice it like you notice it like your son. And then you go to that part of your body and you almost like imagine picking, your, picking that part up. Like you could almost like put your arms around that part, like mentally. And then your mantra is, it's okay, I'm here. And it's, it's different than, you know, the cognitive thing. It's more of just, that's what came naturally to you as a compassionate person. For someone else, they may, there's other words that would fit for them. The, the danger of self-compassion is that we get everything so protocoled that we think we're supposed to say some like, may I be one with my suffering? May I be at peace? May I be happy? May I be whole? And for me, that just sounds like someone else's lines. Mm-hmm. But your lines were, it's okay, I'm here. Pretty good lines. Yeah, it's interesting how you would look to that part of your body where you feel it. Cause like the, it's okay. I've, I've noticed over the years as I've practiced self-compassion, those two words are very powerful for me. Like in mountain biking, there's some very technical trails. And if you're trying to push your skill level, I used to be so hard on myself if I didn't do it, if I, if I wasn't ready, or if I just chickened out or like whatever, if I just didn't do it, I would be so hard on myself. And my husband would be like, like, why are you doing this? Like, it's like, why are you being so hard on yourself? So mm-hmm. I've worked over time. That was one example. And I would just say, it's okay. And now I say, it's okay. And I've actually applied that to lots of other areas and it's been very helpful, but I haven't thought about trying to say it to the part of my body that is that where I'm, where I'm embodying the emotion. And I think a lot of us are disembodied from our emotions. It is very much cognitive and we try to think it away instead of actually going through the feeling. Yeah. The problem with our thoughts when we're feeling a strong emotion is they're not so helpful. <laughs> you know, like like our, our frontal lobe in some way is going offline when our threat system is activated. We all know this because if you were to write down what you were thinking at 2 a.m. last night when you couldn't sleep, we just had, um, we had a lot of floods in California and Santa Barbara where I live. And I'm in this little, so I'm not there. My family's there and I'm in this little casita. Like I am in the jungle, like deep in the heart of the jungle. And I'm about a 10 to 15 minute walk along a dirt road to the main building that has no light at all to it. And I'm also kind of close to, anyways, I'm in the jungle. So I couldn't sleep. 
And there was this flooding happening. And I did what the, the sort of worst sleep hygiene move that I tell my clients never do, which is open the New York Times at 2 a.m. when you can't sleep. <laughs> and I got into this whole like story, right? So if you were to listen to my mind at 2 a.m. when my threat system was activated, it was saying the most ridiculous things about the animals that are going to break into my casita, the people that are going to like hold me at knife point to steal my computer and my family being swept away to sea, right? And so oftentimes we then turn to that same mind to try and give us a solution to our suffering. And that is not the mind you want to consult. But what you can consult is the compassionate heart, the compassionate self, the wise, courageous version of you that knows how to respond to a child or an animal or to somebody else. That's the most helpful thing. And to do it to your, within your body, to get your body into a more, like a place of more, you know, settled, safe groundedness, then you can start to work with your mind a little bit more. So let's get into the last half truth before. So I just want to make sure we do it. The, the hokey yeah. piece, because I think a lot of people yeah, hear like, put your hand, and this definitely got me like, put your hand on your heart and just say to yourself like, oh, like wh whatever. <laughs> like that part just makes me cringe. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a lot of cringeworthy stuff. Well, there's just the field of therapy has a lot of cringeworthy stuff in it, but certainly self-compassion does. And there's some kumbaya to it all. And for some people, that's great. I mean, it, it, it works for them. It's, you know, it, for me, I have such a, I think I have an aversion to that sort of hokiness because I've been around so many therapists that are hokey, like <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work for me. And what I would say about that, but, but here's the, here's the thing about, it, here's the half truth, half truth that it is hokey. It is hokey. And that's why you have to find your own way of doing it. And the, the future of therapy, the future of psychology, that where we are headed next is individualization, which means what Sonia Looney says, it's okay. But for somebody else, I, I know I can think about a client right now that if I told them it's okay, they would feel like it was the most invalidating statement they've ever heard in their life. And they would find it to be like so off-putting to tell them it's okay, right? So with self-compassion, you have to figure it out for yourself. What works for you? What words, when you say them to yourself, or what ways of relating to yourself fit? Not every human is the same. And that's part of the exploration of it. The other thing about, I don't know, have you, Sonia, we were talking about AI. Uh, we and were a couple weeks ago, yeah. A couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, I think AI is hokey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes you put you put a little something into AI and it comes out with this verbiage of your journey into the interwoven tapestry of your life, you know, and you're like, oh my God, it's, it's so hokey. This yeah. this Stop language trying so hard, chat GPT. <laughs> yeah, chat GPT, like the flowery language. Yeah. And and then you kind of could get the essence out of what what it what it's trying to do, right? So if you can get the essence for yourself of what fits best for you, what is motivating for you. And, and part of that for me is more just the embodiment, and there is some good research on embodiment of the compassion itself. So, you know, taking on the facial expression of somebody who has kind eyes, taking on the posture of somebody who is strong and stable and solid, 
taking on the open heart of somebody who's here to receive whatever comes, taking on the breath of somebody who feels like I can handle this. Just doing that. Go sit down and work on your paper with that posture, that facial expression, that breath, and see what happens. And that's not so hokey. That's just sort of like showing up as a version of you, which we all have, that wants the best for you. So, but it is still a little hokey. And I'm I'm increasingly okay with hokey. I'm less judgmental about it as I age. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I like it. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is fear of receiving kindness because going back to the example that I had, like I want to be by myself when I'm having a hard time because I probably don't want to be, there's a fear around receiving kindness from somebody else or comfort from somebody else. I think that this can be a problem in relationships because, you know, vulnerability might mean that you're sharing something that makes you uncomfortable. And now you are in a place where somebody might be giving you kindness. And if you're not willing to be vulnerable, you're never going to be able to receive kindness from somebody else. So I know yeah. people, some people are listening are probably like, Ooh, that, that's me. Like, how can people work on that? And how can I work on that? Well, it's a common fear. I would approach it in the way that I approach a lot of fears, which is when we fear something, our tendency is to avoid, right? And so we, we don't do it. We don't show that we're vulnerable. We don't cry in front of somebody else. And when we avoid that feared thing, we reinforce it because we remove that little, that little short term. It feels like, okay, I didn't have to do that hard thing. But we also strengthen it because we never get corrective information. And when we never get corrective information, we never get to learn. The whole learning process is trying something new that you haven't done before and then getting feedback on it. Did that work? Did it give me what I wanted? Did it not give me what I wanted? And doing it in a way that is wise. I actually think there is a problem with over-vulnerability. I have plenty of cases and clients that I work on where I say, whoa, we need to dial back how much you talk about on that first date with somebody. You don't need to tell them about your trauma history on the first date. Like that's that kind of vulnerability is not is going to make them run, not want to stay, right? Mm-hmm. And so we do need to to do it in a way that is like who 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 based on your, you know, knowledge is a safe person to do this with that can actually give you support and care and be there with you and you have a left enough relationship history to hold it. And you're going to have to skirt that edge of your comfort zone if you want your comfort zone to grow. But ultimately, if you're exposing yourself to any fear, whether it's fear of traveling to a new place or fear of vulnerability or, for me, fear of mountain biking, <laughs> you have to have a good reason why. Mm-hmm. And, and you need to tap into the, the greater benefit or value for yourself for doing that type of exposure. So starting there, like, why would I want that in the first place? How might that benefit me? And remembering that why when the fear shows up to then push yourself to that edge of behavioral stretching to do a little bit more of that thing. You just did it with us by sharing with it, you know, on the podcast that you shared and doing a little experiential with me, Sonia, so that it's just that zone of tolerance, the zone of flexibility grows a little bigger. And for most of us, most of our clients, my clients as well, that have that fear, the fear doesn't always go away, but you're more flexible with it. Mm-hmm. And you can you get to choose, not the fear. I wanted to ask the difference between practicing self-compassion and like a loving kindness meditation. Are those different? Yes, they're, they're different in, in Buddhism and the history of Buddhism. Metta is loving kindness, which is different from karuna, which is compassion. And Loving kindness is just offering good. 
maybe well, maybe happy, maybe successful, you know, maybe healthy. A compassion meditation is actually contacting suffering in yourself or another person and in being with their suffering. There's a classic compassion meditation in Tibetan Buddhism is something called Tonglen. And it's one of the more advanced practices that I, that I do. And actually I kind of really started to like doing, but it sounds terrible. Whenever I suggest someone, a client do it, they're like, I'm not doing that. So what, what Tonglen is, so meta would be something like I'm going to bed at night and I'm just imagining the circle of people around me that I love and I'm imagining each and every one of their faces and I'm just sending them goodwill. May you be well, um, dad, may you be healthy, sister, may you just find peace in your marriage, whatever it is, right? With Tonglen or more compassion type of meditation, you would sit there with your, I don't know, your mom, imagining your mom. And you would see where they suffer. What is hardest for them? What is hardest about them for them in their life right now? What are they struggling with emotionally? What are they struggling with physically? And then you see that suffering and then you imagine breathing it in to your body. You breathe in their suffering. And in Tonglen, you breathe it in like dark smoke. And then you transform it in your body into like a bright, white, clear light. And you breathe it out to them. I'm sending you compassion and love and clarity and all sorts of good things. And then dark smoke, all of their suffering, breathe it in, make contact with it and send it out. And you can do that with your own suffering too. You could breathe in that part of your heart that feels sad and just really be with it and breathe it in like dark smoke and then breathe out clarity, compassion to that part of you. So there's a distinction and, and you know, all of these practices, they have they have deep roots in contemplative practice. And there's, you know, contemplative practice is, has changed and, and, and transformed based on what kind, whether it's Vietnamese Buddhism or it's Tibetan Buddhism or it's Buddhism that's come to the United States or it's secular Buddhism that has now entered into our science. But they they do share this, this common thread of, you know, loving kindness is different than compassion. And then there's sort of the four immeasurables. Like we, we need to have loving kindness. We need to have compassion. And they're called immeasurables because you can never have enough of them. We also need to have mudita, which is joy. Joy for other people's successes. And then we also need to have equanimity, which is the capacity to, to be stable and solid and centered in our being and in our life. And they all work together to support our well-being. I always love how you frame and teach these concepts because I think even like Buddhism has become very secularized in North America and that sometimes you miss some of the, the nuance and context of it. Yeah. It's sort of both and. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful because as we secularize Buddhism, I, I'm involved in a research study right now with Alyssa Apple where they're taking these concepts of mindfulness and compassion, and they're, they're um, spreading it across UC campuses that um, for students that are experienced climate distress and that are involved in climate change activism and how to support them in climate change activism, right? So we got to make it secular. You can't bring in, you know, religious concepts into a UC system. Yeah. <laughs> and I also know that the people that are, that are translating these concepts, people like Alyssa, the teachers that she's brought on have really deep roots in in the spiritual practice. 
Mm-hmm. And so the deep roots and the spiritual practice, I think, makes you a better translator. Just like if you're if you're a clinician or you're a coach and you have deep re- roots in research, what you're saying in your coaching or in your clinical work is going to be so much stronger, even if you never mention a research study. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be stronger. So same thing with um, these contemplative practices. Well, I can't believe we're already out of time, but that was so enlightening. We've talked about self-compassion on this podcast, not you and I, but on this podcast, listeners have heard, you know, from Chris and Neff and, and others about, about it. And we haven't heard about it in this way. And I found this personally very interesting. And I think this is going to be highly applicable to our listeners. So where can people find the journal? If you go to my website, drdianahill.com, I have a special thing where you can, if you order the journal there, then you get some free meditations with me. I think four free meditations. So that's always good. A little bonus thing. Best place to go. And then I'm also have a podcast that I'm just in the, in the process of changing from your life and process to wise effort. And I'm going to be talking a lot about some of the things that we talked about in terms of wise effort. And certainly we'll be having you on, Sonia, as soon as you have time in your life to come on uh, as well. So uh, that's the Wise Effort podcast with Dr. Diana Hill. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. And I'm excited for everybody to keep connecting with your work. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope that you learned a lot. And don't forget to pick up your own copy of the Self-Compassion Daily Journal and to listen to Dr. Diana's podcast, Wise Effort. She is a wealth of knowledge and I am continually learning from her. And don't forget to leave us a review or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast player as that helps the show find others. A big thanks to those of you who are supporting my work on PayPal and Patreon as those donations do not go unnoticed every month as I have an incredible team at Palm Tree Pod who is making sure that this podcast is professionally produced and that the graphics are really nice too. As always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And I'll see you right back here next week.